a little hip. All right, everybody, welcome back to Finding Peaks. Your favorite host is back. I know you've been waiting for me. I know you got your popcorn next to you because that's what I tell you to do because I'm always bringing you good stuff on the other side of the screen. Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, joined today by, with Lauren Atencio, the co-host, uh, licensed addiction counselor, clinical director of our men's campus at Peaks Recovery Centers. Going to help me out today to have a great conversation with our friend Kevin here. And as you all know, uh, we put out several, uh, really this has been a kind of a Prop 122 month here in the state of Colorado to talk about uh, the psychedelic measure uh, or the measures uh, within the bill wrapped around psychedelics and, and namely psychedelic interventions within treatment episodes and so forth. And so we brought you a lot of information and Kevin's going to help us uh, kind of walk through some more details of it, including his personal journey. So excited to bring him on. Uh, Kevin uh, Franciotti. Licensed Addiction Counselor, hopefully I stated the Italian name correctly there. You are also welcome to restate that, but is a Denver-based <laughs> ketamine-assisted psychotherapist and addiction and mental health counselor with over 15 years experience in community mental health, harm reduction, and direct service work. He was uh, an on an advisory board member for per uh, Project New Day's inaugural Community Engaged Public Health Project. Good on the Scrabble board. Psychedelics in Recovery, <laughs> Outreach and Service, which provided support for mutual aid groups whose members integrate psychedelic experiences in their addiction recovery. With that, Kevin, welcome to the show, sir. Awesome to be here. Yeah. The bio is just as hard as pronouncing the last name, so I was <laughs> impressed by both. Yeah. You did great. On Thank both. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, welcome. Um, you know, I, I know we've talked, uh, of course, you know, prior to this and kind of where we want to take this as a, as a journey. And, uh, you know, for the viewers out there, as I just stated, you know, there's a personal history out of this, and I would just love to start by kind of just building up what that background was like, you know, that led to addiction in the first place, um, and we'll negotiate uh, just kind of from there and along the way. Sure. Yeah, no, thanks so much for being here. It's a delight, and in terms of the context of Proposition 122, the Natural Medicine Health Act, uh, you know, I decided a few weeks ago when I wrote uh, an op-ed in support with my endorsement for the Colorado Sun that I was going to tell my story and that's not always a comfortable thing mm -hmm. so I'm really honored to have the venue to further elaborate on some of that and qualify the reasons for my support that are largely informed by my lived experience so you know to kind of roll the tape back uh, a couple decades as a teenager growing up in suburban Long Island being pretty bored with uh, suburbia uh, at an age where we're looking for stuff to do, my friends are experimenting. I was a little slow to the game, but eventually I got there. And uh, in a span of eight years from experimenting casually with things for a variety of reasons, um, wound up finding myself with an opiate use disorder uh, and dropped out from college um, having some experiences being bailed out of trouble thanks to some privileges and resources at my family's and I's disposal. Um, but addiction doesn't really care about things like that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it came back with a vengeance and I relapsed after a 30 day stint in an inpatient facility um, where I was introduced to 12 step recovery, the abstinence based model. I really wanted nothing to do with it at the time. And yet 10 months into another addictive spiral, um, I figured that I should probably try to learn and grow and not be a mess anymore, but I didn't know how to stop. And it took really a loving 
um, moment with my mother who came in and asked me what was wrong. You know, she didn't say, you need to do this. She wasn't yelling at me. It's just in a loving way. What can we do to help? And I told her that um, I've long known about this medicine called Ibogaine. Uh, Ibogaine, which is derived from the root bark of the iboga shrub, which is indigenous to uh, Western equatorial Africa. And it's been known to have remarkable um, uh, affinity and efficacy for attenuating opiate withdrawal mm -hmm. um, and serve as kind of an addiction interrupter. So in that moment of a loving intervention um, in, in a far less uh, charged way that that term is often used, mm. I decided that I need help, I'm gonna ask for it, and I'm gonna say this is the thing that I think might actually do it for me, and in 2011, that's exactly what I did. I appreciate the vulnerability in these stories. Um, I think there is a sense of courage within the politicism of you know, things like Prop 122 and so forth, and you know, just to kind of, uh, just take a moment to really just honor that with you, that, and, and taking this journey with us. Uh, taking a couple steps back, you know, one of the things for the viewers out there that I often talk about are uh, the problems with our industry as a behavioral health industry in general. And um, I would like to, you know, kind of go, well, I think before, you know, engaging in the, the, that negative potential, you know, we talked before the episode, I think one thing for the viewers when we think about Prop 122 is like, oh, there's just more drugs in the market. Mm -hmm. It's just a more drug issue. What about the kids? What about all the issues that follow from that? And, uh, you know, addiction, at least for us at Peaks Recovery Centers, isn't, it's not about the drugs. And we've talked a ton of, about this in the background, that at the end of the day, it's almost like in Gabor, you know, Mate terms, that the drugs almost work, right? And so instead of asking why the drugs, we were asking, like, why the pain, mm. right? And I, you know, I hear within that kind of an adolescent exploratory mm. period and that sort of thing, but oftentimes, you know, as we know, in, uh, at least at Peaks Recovery Centers, in, within the literature of opioids, people describe it as a warm blanket. I mean, it's a common warming, comforting effect. Other folks have talked about it as a kind of a warm bath, getting into it the first time. And mm -hmm. I think that resonates is, you know, for me, as somebody who's never uh, touched opioids, uh, as like, wow, that experience has to be really powerful, right? Mm -hmm. And stepping into that warm tub each time, because who doesn't love a warm tub, especially on a cold, snowy day here in Colorado <laughs> uh, in that way. So, you know, kind of looking back, you know, and readdressing, why the pain? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something I kind of had to have my grappling with when I read Gabor Mate's In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, because I was reading about these, you know, kind of the worst of the worst cases. People grew up with mm. uh, unbelievable tragedy, unbelievable stories of, of just trauma and, and abuse and neglect. And you know that really wasn't present for me in my childhood. Mm. So it was helping me understand the lens of uh, addiction through a harm reduction light and through recognizing that any positive change ought to be celebrated mm -hmm. because we don't really know the, the pain underneath the stories of our worst cases, sadly. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me, uh, you know, I was a, a product of the D.A.R.E. generation. And, you know, to your point of um, being very curious, like what would it take for someone's life to spiral out of control, not because of what happened to them, but because of the misguided ways they were seeking relief and comfort from that. And nobody taught me that. Mm -hmm. You know, I got to see the cool show and tell box from the cop uh, who did the <laughs> D.A.R.E. presentation. That was the only thing I really remembered, uh, aside from um, wondering if cocaine is so bad, why do people do it? Um, but nobody taught me how to uh, uh, make sure that my drugs were unadulterated with anything more dangerous. Nobody told me that 
when I came around to asking somebody for cocaine, a la asking to buy cocaine, they were going to give me cocaine. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't know whether that was going to be a bag of powder containing anything. But to answer your question, um, yeah, as a, as a sort of rebellious, coming of age, adolescence, adolescent interested in experimenting, having to coalesce at a time where I was out and about doing something dumb with my friends on a snowy day, pissed somebody off, pissed the wrong person off, and he got out of his car and jumped me. Um, mm. And he beat me up, I was held down, and I got my tooth knocked out as a result of that. And so acknowledging the trauma of that moment, that assault, and essentially what also came after it, because something happened to me that ought to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the person's name. I barely remember what he looks yeah. like. But there's got to be a way to investigate this. Not so much. Yeah. Um, so the police really did not take much of an interest. They showed me a lineup of people that I could recognize in my high school yearbook who nobody looked like that. Mm -hmm. So you know, years later when I'm reading Gabor Mate and I'm wondering, like, is this really my index trauma? It also brought to mind other things, other pains that I lost, like uh, my grandparents, mm -hmm. uh, the, the death of my grandmother at an old age who spent the last year of her life like really miserable because of a botched procedure mm -hmm. at an ICU. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, you know, there wasn't any explicit abuse, but there was an inability to process significant pain. Mm -hmm. And at a time where I was shifting into adulthood and failing to reach the milestones that I had sought and that I thought I had been capable of, um, drugs were a part of my story, but they weren't um, the thing really ruining everything yet until the pain became too great and opiates did serve as that warm blanket for me um, and I became addicted to them. I appreciate you uh, cataloging that with us and walking us through that journey and I uh, fully appreciate the insights and the awareness too to read a text like that and be like, okay, how do I couch that into my own life and bring that forward? I, I think that's a powerful feature sometimes. You know, Lauren, you know, I've, you know when it's like uh, Dr. Yalom's The Gift of Therapy, people fire off the quotes and they just give me quotes and then I read the book and then I'm like, did they read the book or did they just give me the quotes? And that feels like somebody who's actually yeah. experiencing, you know, living the book and thinking thoughtfully about it. So I appreciate that. And, and back to the disruptive feature of our, you know, industry, uh, a variety of different things we've talked about, like medications, uh, where they work and where they don't work, uh, why they work, why they don't work, or why we don't understand why they work, um, you know, restrictive features of inpatient facilities, part of our curriculum uh, modeling right now that we're talking about as well, too. But, you know, so you get to a point, you know, resource family, and this direction becomes like inpatient programming. I think there's a little bit too more, there's some, uh, you know, some, uh, uh, history with the police and things that might be taking place at the time that gets there, but in our prior discussion, coercion mm -hmm. is the experience, right, to have to go through all these things. Yes, I did these things, I recognize I did that, but I don't know if this is the path that's necessary, and it sounds like for you that creates not only ambivalence, but maybe even just a rejection of like the experience that's moving uh, in that direction. And you know, before Kevin dives into that part of the journey, you know, just for the viewers out there, you know, sometimes individuals arrive at treatment settings. You know, mom drops them off, you know, uh, luggage in hand, and so forth, and they are so resistant. And we spend and can spend as an industry, you know, 15, 30, 45 days just unwinding that as an experience, missing opportunities to really treat people in the way that our curriculum is intending to. Uh, in that regard, and so because I'm all for kind of blowing up the ship and then putting it all back together, 
you know, please walk us through some of those, that experience for you. Happy to blow up that ship because <laughs> I literally was bailed out of county jail, mm. brought to uh, the Long Island Drug and Alcohol Abuse Research uh, Resource Center, uh, sat in front of a, a lovely woman um, who was doing her best to keep my parents calm, um, but she recommended a couple of places, and the next thing I know, I'm whisked away off to that. Um, no autonomy, no say. I mean, did I have a right at that time? Was I pissing people off in my life? Who am I to be entitled for that? But is that really the pretext to an engagement in therapeutic care that we right. want? Um, the treatment center that I did go to out in Long Island uh, was essentially a place where I could get drugs. And I met the people that I could get drugs from because I was not interested in abstinence at the time. Mm. Um, yes, I'm not saying that to brag. I'm not right, saying yeah, that that's what I deserve to be doing. Right. I'm just saying that was my mindset. So why would I be at a place where I'm supposed to be in a controlled environment and yet my main interest is in hooking up with the other people who aren't taking this seriously and can help me get some stuff. So after a few days I left. Um, and, and I came back home, had a challenging moment, you can imagine, with my parents to try to advocate for myself in a healthy way, but still as an unhealthy person. Yet again, like, what other medical condition would require that? Somebody who is being treated poorly through the treatment model offered him, and yet is still struggling with his own pathology, has to become his own advocate, I mean, any, any family member of a loved one with cancer or a complex diagnosis that argues with insurance companies about coverage knows what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what happens in addiction. And so, you know, when I did go to a place that I had more of a say in, I chose a, 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 a rehab that was in a, a more secluded environment in upstate New York. It was a nicer campus, a little more laid back. But I didn't really know what I was doing. so during my intake process, I got all the same kind of scare, scare tactics. Oh, this is how many drugs you've been doing and you're only in your mid-20s? Yeah, you're gonna be dead by 30. Mm -hmm. Like, who sets you up for success by, by giving you that doom and gloom mentality? Right. And the whole notion of sitting in a room with 40 people and the facilitator says, you know, look to your left, look to your right, one of them's gonna be in jail, the other one's gonna be dead, are you gonna be clean or back here? Again, these scare right. tactics things do not work. So a year later, after leaving an environment like that, relapsing within weeks, knowing I'm bottoming out again, why would I just want to go back to that? Mm -hmm. Knowing that my parents spent like tens of thousands of dollars on that experience and I'm going to ask them to buy more? Yeah. No, I need a different right. approach. And that's right. kind of what this measure is allowing us to do. That's what my path and my story led to. Um, and so even as a practitioner today, as a licensed addiction counselor, I feel like I predominantly work as a systemic harm reduction provider. Like yeah. I need to educate parents, educate clients, educate people on the devastating uh, void left by ineffective treatment interventions that people like me are trying to carry the weight for. Absolutely. Beautifully stated, and I think the word that comes up for us at Peaks a lot and what we're really trying to uh, engage with out of Proposition 122 is namely innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. We are stuck in a variety of ways as an industry couched in some of those um, kind of horrible ways of approaching patient care, look to the left, look to the right type behavior. And this is an opportunity to take something, at least for us, right, something like a 90-day, you know, let's just to, you know, do a, a quick 
couching in terms of like a major depressive disorder where cognitive behavioral therapy as an evidence-based approach can take 90 days to punch through that rumination, right, for the individual. And these um, plant-based medicines might give us the, I don't want to say might, I want to say strongly that they will give us the opportunity to kind of punch through the ego, whatever it is that uh, we want to couch the terms in. Uh, in a much faster uh, way, you know, we know somebody close to us who recently uh, did a plant-based medicine kind of two, three-day retreat and came back and said, I just did 10 years of therapy mm. in two days. Mm. I mean, that's the type of power we're talking about with something like this. It has a ton of edges to put around it, and we can negotiate that here in, a, in a, the next episode we're about to be a part of. Um, but with that, innovation is the reality for this industry and the reality for psychotherapy, and it gives a great deal of power back to um, the entire industry itself and not necessarily um, going to be at the level of just, you know, psychiatrists and doctors holding on to these as opportunities. It informs uh, equity and access mm -hmm. to care in that way of things. So before I continue with all the thoughts, ideas I have, how are you feeling, Lauren? Yeah. So Brandon told me to bring my clinical brain today. So that's what I've been doing the whole time you've been talking. Um, so I guess my curiosity comes around to like, you mentioned um, the love you felt from your mother mm -hmm. when you asked about the different mm -hmm. treatment modality. I'm like I'm curious for our viewers, like what did she give you in that moment that was so powerful mm -hmm. for you to feel empowered to go get the help you felt you needed? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of one of those moments where you don't really. It's like I was having an out of body experience. Yeah. Like I, I knew what I wanted to say that of course I've wanted to say this before, right. but in a moment of resistance, in a moment of, you know, I, I have something in my pocket that I just need to get through this conversation and run to the bathroom to use. Mm -hmm. You know, I was also, like I said, bottomed out. So I was broken, desperate, scared, and alone. Yeah. You know, what does an animal do when they're broken, desperate, scared, or alone? Sometimes they lash out yeah. at their caregivers. Sometimes they recoil. Sometimes they run off to a corner to lick their wounds. Mm -hmm. We're humans, we're animals, so we have many of the same tendencies. And a lot of times in a moment like that, people don't understand that those complexities are paramount. So when my mom came into my room, she just sat down at the foot of the bed. I am to this day unaware of what her agenda was, what she knew, what she didn't know, what she was afraid of. And all she just said was, you know, I don't think you've left your bed in three days. And mm -hmm. I did. I just waited until they were asleep to go out and score. But me knowing that she's doing her best to be calm, centered, loving, and really unconditional. Yeah. She was just asking me, not saying, you know, I've got somebody outside waiting. Are you going to go or are you going to continue to fight? Right. It was, what could we do? And that was all it took for the words to actually make their way out of my mouth and say, I need help, I don't know what to do, and I want to try Ibogaine. Yeah, I just think it's so powerful, and I, 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 we talked a little bit right before of like individualized care and how everybody needs something different, and I think due to the stigma, due to the way treatment centers work, all of these different things, you know, the idea of disrupting the industry is sometimes just asking someone how they are because nobody I can imagine in your two treatment stints actually sat down and asked how you were. And so I just, I really wanted to kind of emphasize that because I can imagine it gave you a lot more empowerment to go do it and really be intentional about it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, having my family on my side was yeah. crucial and, yeah. and not only for like a reinforcement of my internal willingness, but also for some accountability, yeah. right? Like I was still, you know, a mess even mm -hmm. after detoxing, I'm still two days off of heroin and having a powerfully transformative psychedelic experience, trying to make sense of what had all just been happening to me. So, you know, I had my moments of indecision and doubt and yeah. a desire to not follow through with some of the commitments that I made. But again, in a loving way, you know, my parents gave me some feedback that was a little critical and surprised, <laughs> believe it or not. And, and you know what, it changed my mind. Yeah. Um, and so it didn't fix everything for me, but it allowed me to have a moment um, of peace and safety in an otherwise criminalized context. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the elephant in the room with any conversation about how do we innovate, how do we disrupt the addiction treatment industry, we can't effectively, and as long as drug prohibition continues to persist, it colors everything, it pins families against each other, mm. it pins moms against the state in arguments to get, and we have this whole context that if you're gonna criminalize the symptoms of a disease, why are we even bothering calling it a disease? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, beautifully stated. Yeah, we we'll love that. <laughs> I, I love the delivery of that. Uh, you know, and, and, and as we talked about on the, uh, the beginning of this show and, you know, to the viewers out there, I've said it in the past in a way around Proposition 122, uh, we are trying to open the hearts and the minds of individuals out there who might be on the fence or just a wholehearted no to this. And uh, I'm curious, Kevin, how, you know, you know around the Iobogaine experience, how you would like the audience, um, how, you, how you want them to, to see your experience in a way that can possibly open up their hearts and minds to it, you know, in that regard. And what, what, what do you want them to know about what that is, the reverence for the medications, all of these sort of things that um, they're, they might not be aware of in this moment uh, that you want them to hear? Sure. I mean, as is often the case with someone like me who has family resources, had their support to travel outside of the country to a pretty expensive short-term intervention that required a tremendous leap of faith, um, it's, it's going to be the folks that have not responded to traditional means. And I really hate that that's the current case. Why should we make somebody go through three, four, five, six failed attempts at a treatment episode from a more mainstream way, spending how many untold dollars and time, meanwhile, all the while risking death, risking participation in an illicit market uh, mm. with an adulterated drug supply and a uh, legal backdrop that in some states still won't even empower people to test the drugs that they're using to see whether they know what's in it. Mm -hmm. So what I admire about Peaks and this idea about disrupting the industry is that you know we're talking about multiple layers of disruption here. Right. So as a practitioner, as somebody with lived experience, I'm both interested in disrupting that mainstream addiction treatment mentality and the criminalized mentality. And I think Proposition 122 does an excellent job at both. You know, right now we have a scenario whereby there is credible, albeit limited, research largely because of the restrictions of the war on drugs and many of these compounds existing in Schedule 1, which for your listeners that are not as familiar with all the legal complications, 
Schedule One is a designation, is a political designation manufactured by the Drug Enforcement Administration. It has no bearing on science. It is not a credible, credible construct. But as a result, they've essentially handicapped the FDA and various ways of going through legitimate channels to develop these drugs. No pharmaceutical company really wants to touch them because they're a, a hot item, uh, a contentious issue in the discourse. Some of them have difficult patent strategies and all that business stuff that you know mm -hmm. much more about than I do. Um, but ultimately, the, the current situation of mental health treatment um, is on the one hand operating business as usual, failing to recognize poor outcomes, failing to have achieved any amount of innovation in the past couple of decades. We have a promising tool that we've actually known about for a long time. Ibogaine's anti-addictive potential was discovered in 1962. Uh, medicines like psilocybin and magic mushrooms or LSD were being investigated in the 50s and 60s for alcohol use disorder among mm -hmm. other indications. Mm -hmm. So the research has struggled to gain momentum because of the regulatory restrictions, not because the science wasn't promising. And God only knows what we could have accomplished in the three quarters of a century uh, of these medicines not having been demonized. So we're long overdue for a new approach. This is not a, a outside the box revolutionary idea that has had no bearing in reality that a couple of hippies uh, brewed up in right. some kind of concoction. This is a real thing that will benefit real people. And like myself, uh, I have become an advocate for service to people who don't necessarily have the resources to fly to Mexico uh, and do and, and talk openly like this yeah. without fear of consequences, which is a real thing too. Mm -hmm. So I, I implore people to really um, be open-minded about Prop 122, be open-minded about the fact that we have passionate people, knowledgeable people, trained people interested in making sure this is a, a successful initiative that's going to require a tremendous amount of education and training and supportive resources from the community. So whether or not you vote uh, in favor of Prop 122, if it does pass, we still want that person to have a seat at the table. We want to engage with those concerns mm -hmm. and we want to see how we can work to mitigate that stuff in implementation. Yeah, absolutely. Beautifully stated. This is why we have these guests, because you know me, I'll have a tangent at work, and then people are like, I think he said something. I'm not clear as to what his direction was. And you're just so thoughtful, and, uh, and it's just so intact uh, as a discussion. So I appreciate uh, just having words of wisdom around the proposition and the personal experiences you know, from an uh, open heart, open mind uh, mentality so that the viewers can reel through that. Uh, of course, you know I got more tangents, Lauren. You want to you bring something up, something on top of mind right now? Yeah. I before you went into that, you um, talked about the idea of a fix, mm. and I think it would be important to kind of reiterate that it's not necessarily a fix, but instead kind of a gateway, or how would you kind of describe that? Right. I mean, in my personal experience, which is the only thing I'll comment on in regards to that, you know, I like this idea about um, 10 years in ther of therapy in one night. What's, what I find very interesting about that uh, description is, man, I would hate to learn what that therapy was like. Mm -hmm. yeah. if, if 10 years didn't do anything and you're comparing what yeah. you received from a medicine on, on that, I have that experience as well that, you know, nothing that I could get out of 
therapy was going to provide a direct experience that I had on Ibogaine. So I essentially sought Ibogaine as a detox intervention. Mm. You know, at this traditional 12-step abstinence-based model rehab, nobody really talked up drug replacement therapy. Right. Nobody talked up methadone Weird. and buprenorphine. Weird. It's, it's <laughs> the only thing that cuts mortality rates in half for opiate users. But mm -hmm. nobody really shared that information mm -hmm. with me. Instead, they made me feel like I was going to replace one drug for another. Right. Uh, I, had, I had people who I could identify with as speakers come and tell me, don't go to Narcotics Anonymous, go to Alcoholics. And all, like, what, why would I need to be figuring any of this stuff out? Mm -hmm. But ultimately, when I saw it, I began, understandably, with the context of needing to detox. Ibogaine has an incredible, somewhat miraculous ability to relieve the symptoms of detox. Um, so as an addiction interrupter, you know, I was removed from my environment. I was placed in a situation where if I ran away, where would I score? So I was committed, I had surrendered, I had this backdrop of accountability as a result of some of the legal implications of really getting with the program. So for my story, it's not just one thing necessarily that made everything work, yeah. but I was nonetheless remaining completely resistant mm. to any of it mm -hmm. without having the direct experience that Ibogaine provided me because I was broken, miserable, and isolated. Ibogaine came in in what may have been a faint spark that still existed in the spirit of my life and just threw gasoline on it and erupted this life force of energy where I spent all night engaging with all of the sorts of thoughts and ideas and fantasies and imaginations and memories mm -hmm. and connecting with relationships that I had been losing by engaging in self-destructive behavior. What kind of detox treat, well, who comes out of detox talking like that. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's what I just had. That is the greatest biopsychosocial <laughs> document ever right there, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. you're lucky if you get out of detox with the, when, and the nurse didn't curse you out and, and make you feel like you were unworthy of even taking up that bed. Yeah. And, and to experience the polar opposite of that, um, it provided a opportunity for me to engage in a new way of life that nothing really was enabling me to do previously because it was self-driven and self-motivated and as a result of a self-awakening, I then became engaged with the hard work. Um, the program being offered to me still was a 12-step model of recovery. I decided to embrace it. You know, I'm a college dropout, I'm unemployable. Uh, what's the worst that seven months in South Florida hanging out in an AA clubhouse is gonna really do for my circumstances? For some people, um, quite a lot of bad things happen. For me, with the mindset that I had, I knew that if I surrendered, dedicated, and committed to the program, that good things would come my way and that eventually I would be able to help people. Yeah. At a certain point, I found that I couldn't share about my experience with psychedelics in, in the rooms. Mm -hmm. You know, you're making small talk in South Florida. I, I have social anxiety, like I don't know anybody. What do people ask down there? Mm -hmm. What's your drug of choice? What rehab did you go to? Yeah. What detox did you just come from? I would say Mexico. Mexico, that's different. <laughs> what was there? Ibogaine. Ibogaine, what's that? And it was just a series of disappointing follow-up questions until <laughs> I was essentially treated like I thought of myself, you know, would you ask what a cancer patient, what mm. formulation of chemotherapy that they did? Yeah. I want to try that. I was basically getting feedback like, I'd love to try Ibogaine. I was like, yeah, that was a really devastating moment in my life. So I started to censor that part of my story. And, that's um, interesting. 
it was a very impactful thing for me that eventually, years later, led me to a wonderful fellowship of people that we've been helping assemble over the past few years that, like me, um, have found and embraced integrating intentional use of psychedelics in their ongoing 12-step informed recovery program that recognizes the inherent controversies with engaging with a mood or mind-altering medicine, but also acknowledges that the intentions that people come into these experiences are a lot different than the self-destructive right. uh, intentions that they had engaging in addictive drug use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful for me. It, it reminds me of uh, the book I recently read too, Along This Journey, How to Change the Mind. And within it, it describes Bill Wilson's journey uh, our, our, and his insights into psychedelics and what he thought the power was on behalf of the 12-step model. Now, he, of course, to be clear and true to the to, you know, 12-steppers out there and the, and the fellowship and all of it that exists, I recognize his spontaneous moment in the hotel in, in Ohio and all of that sort of stuff. I'm taking that for what it is. That's his real genuine experience in that moment. But 15 years later, he's writing letters back and forth between psychiatrists and stuff. And the reason he's engaging in uh, psychedelic conversations at all is because of those first three steps, powerlessness, find higher power, you know, and, and, and through that, he recognized, or at least it, in the experience of reading some of the letters, right, that, hey, if individuals could just get this, we'd be off to the races with the rest of the steps because this is the hang-up for individuals within that. And for me, you know, like what you just described, from a coercive event, right, the animal nature of us wants to run, hide, or shut down, or lash out, those types of things, uh, from a coercive event, it has no weight. Why would you show up to the treatment center with any sort of, like, I'm ready to go, right? And in this other regard, you get to go experience something. It was largely out of a detox episode. I think that's really neat uh, to think about because it wasn't like I'm going to have this experience where I'm just going to be like blown away, have all this weight, and then move into all these things in my life. But it gave you that, and I think it's one of the very powerful experiences from these plant-based medicines in general where individuals, at least in the research that I've read or you know, even in How to Change the Mind and the research that's brought forward in that, there's something about the shift in weight, mm -hmm. the seriousness that comes on the other side of it, and then the exploratory features, namely out of autonomy for how to get well after that. And that sounds, I mean, largely kind of just what you went through. Am I off a little bit there? Or, no, I yeah. mean, my story bears a lot of parallels to what Bill Wilson was attempting to advocate for. And you have to remember the context that Alcoholics Anonymous was established in, right? This is, we're talking the early 20th century. Uh, doc, the best doctors of the world, of, of America, didn't really know what to do with alcoholics mm -hmm. anymore. The, the real, so-called real alcoholic that, that the big book out, outlines in the chapter more about alcoholism, those were the types of folks that they were trying to reach. Not, not, not people that maybe had a few benders every now and then, Maybe they lost a job or two. Maybe their marriage was on the rocks. These were people with devastatingly low bottoms that Alcoholics Anonymous sprung up to attempt to respond to based on Bill Wilson's own personal experience. So, you know, what happened at Towns Hospital, there's often a lot of debate around whether he was given the Belladonna treatment, Belladonna being this delirient that has psychedelic-like effects. And I don't, I don't really, uh, am, I'm not really interested in, in interrogating that. What I'm interested in is how years later, when he was suffering from depression and he received a legal LSD treatment because LSD hadn't been banned at the time, essentially experienced both relief from his depression and the realization that what he had been experiencing was very similar to whatever happened at Towns Hospital that initially led to his white light encounter that he describes in the big book. So the enthusiasm of coming in 
to working with those bottomed out alcoholics that AA was attempting to reach, knowing all of those complicated factors about what the hell do I care about helping somebody? That's step 12. I'm, I'm miserable. I can't stop using. My liver is like on the, I'm about to die. Mm -hmm. What do I care about making amends to all the people that I've harmed before? Mm -hmm. What do I care about taking a, a daily moral inventory? But, you know, when you do surrender, when you do engage in those first few steps and work the rest with, with a sponsor, you start to see the light. Right. But if you can't see that from the outset, exactly what I was struggling with, Ibogaine provided me what a glimpse of having had a spiritual awakening could look like if I continued to work the steps. And the spiritual awakening that I ultimately discovered was a freedom from the obsession and compulsion to use. Perhaps that's the weight that we're mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah. The weight being carried is this burden that no matter what I do, I'm constantly stressed with obsessing and compulsively using medicines, drugs, behaviors, gambling, whatever it is. When I can get through that, I can see the humility, I can see what recovery looks like in sharing that message of hope to somebody who's worse off. Because ultimately, why I became a practitioner mm -hmm. was to commit myself to service to people that, like me, have kind of been wronged by the mainstream treatment models. Mm -hmm. So it's um, what psychedelics represent and what part of my work with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in my practice acknowledges that individuals have an inner healing capacity. Just like the body can heal itself from wounds and you go to a hospital to have your bones set or a bandage wrapped around an abrasion, the body does the rest of the work if it's cleaned and properly addressed. Just like that, the mind in a certain container can allow for healing potential to happen even in some of our most complicated conditions. Psychedelics, things like ketamine, things like ibogaine, puts people in touch with that inner healing capacity, which is exactly what I experienced. Yeah, love it. Clinical insights, how are you feeling? Yeah, I, I don't know. This is just really cool. Like, I, I'm so glad that you're here to kind of walk us through this because I think, you know, just abstinence as a whole in substance use treatment is so pushed on everybody, but I think this opens up that light. But I, I want to go back again to like to this idea that I you are saying like as much as you're doing the psychedelic treatment that there also needs to be additional therapy with that and I think the reason I go back to that is because the mutual person that um, Brandon and I know who recently kind of walked through her own psychedelic experience um, shared a little bit of like I thought I was going to be fixed and all my old patterns and behaviors are coming back and I feel discouraged and all of these different things you know and so I think the importance of therapy is emphasized in that. Critically I mean yeah. I, the not a panacea right? Not at all <laughs> and I'm, I, that's why I like drawing the analogy to my Ibogaine treatment essentially functioning as a detox. Yeah. Um, it was so much more than that as the understanding of what detox is, the spin dry mentality, right? right? Um, so knowing all the mindset that I came into it with that, I did also have an expectation of being fixed, right? Yeah. I, I was like, I was still detoxing. I was still in withdrawal. So I had this wonderful experience. I felt euphoria um, during a time where I should have been in agony. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, when the effects of the medicine wear off, I was, I was still feeling some stuff. Mm -hmm. I was also flushed with guilt and remorse mm -hmm. and shame yeah. for all of the things that I had been putting the loved ones around me, including myself through and, and the toll. 
how do you contain that? You know, you can't expect a weekend medicine retreat to do this. This is why Prop 122 is so important because we're talking about a service delivery model. Yeah. We're talking about doing this in a controlled setting with trained providers that can connect people who might have uh, dysregulating experiences as a result of what they're coming in with. For a lot of people, they have, they have lofty, glowing, euphoric, reinforcing, ego softening experiences, and that's great. For, for, for many others, there will be more work that gets revealed. A lot of, uh, as we know, um, intractable neuroses and other types of debilitating mood disorders are essentially imperfect strategies for people to block access to their pain, mm -hmm. block access to what it really is underwriting their symptomatology. So you know, we work with SSRIs to try to mitigate symptoms, to make sure people still have an appetite and still mm -hmm. can catch a few hours of sleep so that they can go to work and take their kids to sport practice. That's just maintaining a, a equilibrium enough for them to function. These medicines really try to provide someone the ability to access what's going on underneath their issues. And that needs to be held with therapy. That needs to be engaged in a process. And if, I hope, somebody allows their uh, psychedelic journey to serve as the backdrop for 10 years of therapy, that's going to be 10 years of quality therapy yeah. and not yeah. the other side of that comparison. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, one of the things I'm like boiling in my thought bubble here about is just like, and we, <laughs> talked, we talked about it in the curriculum, you know, meeting a little bit uh, the, this past week, uh, Lauren, or I brought it up. <clears throat> Hopefully the room got what I was putting down. But, you know, you, you, you break your arm, right? And you go into the emergency room. Uh, the costs are fixed. There's generally a timeline for it. This MD is going to treat it the same way. This MD, DO, MD, and so forth, right? You know, with slight variations maybe on the, the movement of the scalpel, right? But at the end of the day, there's a common thread for how to do that. Our industry has, hey, we can fix that broken arm. We can fix the behavioral issues that are going on. But we have a pretty particular philosophy about how to do that, right? It would be like as insane as walking in the emergency room and the guy, you know, the doctor stating, look, I'm going to fix this. We're going to go under the knife. But when you wake up, it's not going to be in a cast because I don't believe in casts. <laughs> you know, you're just going to have to sit really still. But I promise this will actually heal better than without the cast. Trust me, you know, like you're going, all that sort of thing. And so absurdities aside, you know, it, it's these individualized philosophies within care that become so restrictive, right? And so, um, and, and create that coercion mechanism that I think is off-putting for a lot of individuals who participate in treatment episodes, right? What is it like for somebody to come into Peaks and instead of us just being like, hey, this is our philosophy and this is what you have to do, like, these are the things we're doing. How can we make this the most beneficial experience for that? It still has restrictive features in it, but it's less restrictive than a full-blown philosophy. At the same time, if we had something like the advantages that will come out of Proposition 122 to give that intervention on the front end, you know, post-detox, it's got to be appropriate, of course, like all of these things are going to be set up to engage with this thoughtfully. On the other side of that, what about these aspects of our care do you really want to engage in? Or, you know, what is the next step if not these levels of care, you know, out there in the world that we can connect you with that's going to make this meaningful and reinforce, reinforce that autonomy approach to care? Um, so more of a tangent, more of a little rant. I don't know if that 
No, I mean, I think that's, a lot of people are concerned with the fact that Prop 122 is emphasizing the creation of a, of a non-medicalized model. Mm -hmm. What people need to understand is that does not mean there won't be trained medical professionals involved in that service delivery. But when you say non-medicalized model, it means that, hey, maybe I'm not going to have to sit across a doctor at a rehab who tells me I have nine years left to live because yeah. of the way I'm, I'm using drugs, right? Because that's his biased outlook on, you know, the dozens of people that he's done intakes for, hundreds of people over the years, and probably for him, pretty burnt out mm -hmm. uh, seeing yeah. people die and not knowing what to do anymore. Mm -hmm. So when we think of the system, having a non-medical system that doesn't require people to come in with a specific diagnosis, we're not coming in with an agenda about how to steer people towards the direction of their own healing. We're allowing the individual autonomy, the support that they have access to in their community resources, their spiritual groups, their peer support groups, their family, their employers. Suddenly people don't have to be operating in darkness by saying, yeah, I had an ayahuasca retreat uh, on my last summer vacation. Like, what'd you do uh, for vacation, Steve? <laughs> uh, you know, I packed up the kids and we went to the water park. <laughs> like, this is, we're normalizing a conversation and we're, in, in, we're baking it into our existing structures. So. You know, when, when Peaks talks about disruption in a way of innovation, so much of addiction treatment, so much of mental health treatment is a disruption to somebody's life. You know, what do we do when somebody expresses serious suicidality? Well, as, as we do as providers, we do an assessment of risk. Well, if they say this in a school, if they say this in a setting where they don't really have the time and attention to provide that, suddenly that person's getting hauled off to the hospital for a 72-hour hold. How disruptive is that? How yeah. much access to supportive resources is that? Is that just covering your ass to make sure this person doesn't walk out of your office and hurt themselves, totally. and then you're the one putting the bill for it? So when we need to understand the complexity, it, it's a little bit of like insider's baseball here to know as providers the limitations of the system, but take it from people who are working in mainstream systems that some aspects of the system are broken. So if we're advocating for a different strategy that doesn't exist in there, but can be added on um, to traditional forms of treatment in addition to community resources, there's reasons for that because we understand some of the limitations. What would I think uh, a doctor who's really committed to the coercive strategy uh, that they've been invested in throughout their career, suddenly having access to a psychedelic medicine. Are they going to suddenly change their minds and have their own opened up approach to working with people in an individualized framework? Or are they gonna seize upon psychedelics as further tools to help coerce people right. into a model that maybe they're not interested in? Totally. Very complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, we are arriving at uh, the end of this episode. We're going to be hanging out with some doctors next uh, who are going to give us more feedback on uh, the Prop, one, uh, Prop 122 movement, uh, as well as we'll get more into um, some of the common psychedelic uh, medications that exist today already, uh, ketamine infusion um, and so forth, or ketamine intervention models in that way of things. Uh, so we'll, we'll get right back to it. But um, for the sake of this episode, as I stated from the beginning, Throw the viewers uh, and the camera in front of you. Kind of how do, how do they reach out to you um, if they want to receive you know your private practice services, ketamine infusion based services, uh, all of that stuff. Hit them with yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. I have a private practice based in Littleton. Um, I do ketamine assisted therapy. I accept Medicaid reimbursement. Um, I work with young adults, adults, elder adults with substance use, behavioral c conditions, 
mood disorders, trauma. I work with families uh, that have loved ones that are struggling as a consultant or a coach. Um, for clinicians out there, I do supervision. Um, I assist with training with Skylight Psychedelics, um, as well as uh, group therapy, and I do telehealth as well. So you can find me at Kevin Franciotti Counseling, K-E-V-I-N-F-R-A-N-C-I-O-T-T-I, counseling.com, or on my Psychology Today profile. Um, and yeah, I look forward to hearing from you. Beautiful. Well, as I always say, hanging out with the clinical people, this is literally all things clinical. Lauren, thank you so much for being <laughs> here. You. Kevin, an absolute pleasure to have you uh, here with us as well, too. And uh, to all the viewers out there, again, uh, thanks for joining us. I know you're done with your popcorn, ready to get back to the kitchen, get some out yummy in your tummy uh, after listening to this episode. And with that, um, while you're going back to the kitchen, check us out on the TikToks, the, the Twitters, the Facebooks, all of the social media things out there. Uh, like us, follow us, all those things means the world to us to continue these messages forward. Uh, for anybody who has questions, thoughts, ideas, uh, feedback for this episode, finding peaks at peaksrecovery.com. Uh, that's how we're engaging in these episodes, following your direction at the end of the day. Uh, again, I'm Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers, and until next time, it's good being with you.